Father, we're thankful that we can come and that we can trust that you love us, that you know us. Um, not just us corporately as a, as a church, but you know us individually and that you love us. Uh, God, forgive us for times at which that doesn't strike or penetrate our heart, in which we've grown dull, in which it doesn't bring the excitement and the awe that we would be loved by the creator of the universe who is holy and just, but yet is merciful. And so I pray that you would speak to us once more, that um, these truths that are perhaps old and common would become fresh and new in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, and that we would once again be found rejoicing uh, at the symbol, but awe-inspiring gospel. Be with us, God. Move in and through our midst. Um, change us for your glory. It's here we pray, Christ. Amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing okay? Awesome. Well, we are continuing in our sermon series over the church, um, and we're concluding today uh, the last series over the church's identity. And so what we've seen so far is that um, the church isn't the creation of man. Man didn't create the church. Uh, it wasn't man's idea, but rather it was God's. God is the one that created his church. He founded it. Jesus said um, upon this statement uh, that he is the Messiah, that he will build his church. So Jesus is the one that found it. He's the one that sustains it. Um, he's the one that will ensure that it perseveres. Um, not only this, but he's also the one that identifies it. He's the one that gets the opportunity to identify the church. Often uh, the churches, people identify the church by their experiences, by their past, by other sin. But Christ is the one that has bought back his church. And since he has bought his church, he's created, he alone has the ability and right to identify it, to call it uh, for who he says that his church is. Now, the church isn't a country club. It's, uh, it's not a building. It's not a business. The church is God's people gathered together. Uh, and last week we talked about that um, since the church is a people, it's not just any people, right? The church is a very specific people. It's the people that have received the true gospel and have been changed and transformed by it. Right? The, the gospel is that Christ has come to save us from our sin and to help us to live a reoriented life underneath his loving and sovereign reign. Jesus doesn't come just to save us from the penalty of our sins so that we can live however we want. Now, Jesus comes and he saves us from our sin that we might lovingly submit underneath his gracious rule as king. And so, Christ's lordship, he leads us as his church, right? God's, we're not co-pilots with Jesus. Jesus is the pilot and we follow where he leads. We submit underneath him. But how is it that Christ leads his church? How is it that he guides us individually? Well, certainly he's given us his Holy Spirit, and through prayer and time, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and leads us along. He's given us the church body individuals through which he speaks through their experiences, but clearly and objectively, and finally, God speaks through his word. Christ leads us through the scripture that he has given to us. And we see it, uh, John 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says that the church is his flock and that they hear his voice through the scriptures and that they will come, they will follow after him. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is what illuminates our path so that we might walk clearly. The idea is that before we were blind walking around, I don't know about you guys, have you ever been in your living room when it's dark out? If you're not super familiar, sometimes you trip over things. 
And the idea is that God's, that before we had God's word, before we understood God's word, we were running around, walking in life blind, tripping over things. But God's word comes and Christ opens our eyes to understand it and it brings light. It leads our path so that we might begin to understand and see things that previously we didn't. John Calvin, he says that the Bible is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules his church. And so that's the, that's the big idea that we're going to talk about today is that the Bible, the, the scriptures are the way that, that God brings life and informs and clarifies who his church is, what his church is to do. And so the first thing that we need to talk about is what is the Bible. And so the Bible can briefly be summarized as God's word through God's people to people for all people. Okay, so I'll, I'll say that again a little bit differently. So the Bible is God's word through his people to specific people for the benefit of all people. So let's take a little bit of time and actually break that down into some portions that we can, we can chew and swallow. So first, the, uh, the Bible is God's word. Right? What do we mean by God's word? Well, the Bible doesn't start out by arguing for the existence of God. Right? It's not primarily a philosophical book. You don't open up and have a list of you know, addresses trying to argue for the existence of God. No, it opens up assuming God's existence, starting off with the very fact that God is. And so we learn that God isn't deaf, he's not dumb, he's not mute, but God, in fact, speaks. He has a will, he has a mind, he has emotions, and he expresses himself. He expresses himself through speech. Now, we believe that God has expressed himself and has revealed himself in the 66 books of the Bible. But how do we know that the Bible is actually God's word? Right? I mean, if God speaks, he could have spoken through any kind of means. So how do we have any kind of confidence that the Bible is actually God's word and not, say, you know, the Book of Mormon or the Quran or other holy books from of old? Well, there's lots of ways in which you can argue for the divine authorship of Scripture. You can go and you can look at its historicity. You can look at the massive manuscripts we have and how they are reliable and trustworthy. You can go and you can argue from prophecy, even. And you can say, well, look at these prophecies and you see how this was prophesied, you know, and this was fulfilled. I mean, in Christ alone, you have... You know, Isaiah 53 that talks, it's written over 800 years before Jesus was born, and in it alone there's, you know, 11 to 12 prophecies about Jesus. And so you can, you can argue for, you know, the prophetic nature of Scripture speaks of itself. Maybe even its beauty or its artistry. Uh, but there are two things that I think speak that this is God's Word. One is that Jesus affirms that it's God's Word. When you look at the character of Jesus within the Scripture, Jesus affirms again and again, and he treats the Old Testament as God's very word. Right? When Jesus is, is tempted, what does he do? He proceeds forth by saying, it is written. He has memorized, internalized the Old Testament. Or maybe he just remembered it from when he spoke it before. But, uh, but he, he knows it and he quotes it, believing that it's truthful believing that it's reliable, believing that it is what will defend him. It is what will guard him. Not only this, but he says that scripture is enduring, that it is eternal. He says that there will be nothing that will pass away. Not an iota, not a tittle. Nothing will pass away from God's word. And so Jesus looks in the Old Testament and he says that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy. So not only that, but, but also my personal experience. 
So when I've encountered scripture, when I've read scripture, it has a self-authenticating mechanism in it where I, I experience God through the Bible. Right? And it's not just me. It's not just that I experience the divine through reading the scriptures, but it's for billions of people across thousands of years. The largest belief system in the history of mankind testifies that God is experienced in and through his scripture that as people read it, that as people abide in it, that they experience God's presence, that they have an experience of of God through it. And so that might sound like it's a circular argument, right? Well, you're saying that I read the Bible and therefore, you know, like, I'm to learn that God's the author of the Bible by reading the Bible. Isn't that kind of like, isn't that circular? But I'm going to go a little philosophical here just for a second, okay? Um, in, my, in my college classes, we took this whole problem of, like, how do you know that you're really there, right? So how do you know that this isn't all part of the matrix, right, and that you're not just in some dream world, okay? I mean, it's actually a tough problem because when you start to think about it, everything you would experience is just part of the matrix. And so how are you to argue that I'm not living in the matrix, Anything that you could try to use is, you know, doesn't really matter. Well, I feel, I sense, I taste, it's all these things. But we hold that there's something true about, there's a baseline experience. There's something true. There's a, 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 a foundation upon which every other experience, everything else is built upon, that just by having it makes it true. Right? There's something about being alive that just makes you know that you're alive. Right? Beyond any argument, you can say, listen, that's silly and that's foolish. I'm alive, right? You know, like that's, yeah, maybe I can't give you all these philosophical reasons why, but like I know that I'm alive and I'm not living in a matrix, you know? And there's something like, there's something self-authenticating about the experience of being alive that testifies to itself. And that is what we mean when we talk about the scriptures, that there's an experience of reading the scriptures, of, of sensing God's presence in the scriptures where he meets us that is foundational, it's baseline, it's self-authenticating. And for me, and, and not just me, but for countless millions and billions of other Christians, this has been the foundation that have led them to give their lives, that have led them to stakes, that have led them to endure torture because they have confidence that they have experienced God in the scriptures. So we believe that, that the scriptures are are from God because we see that Jesus says that, we experience it, and lots of other proofs as well. So what is the Bible exactly? Right? The, the Bible is God's self-revelation. In it, God reveals who he is. He shows himself. He reveals his will, his attributes, his nature, his character. He starts to begin to unpack who he is. Now, the Bible is not... Not everything that we're going to know about God, right? There's going to be an eternity where we're constantly learning new things. Um, but there's this passage in Deuteronomy that talks about that God has kept the secret hidden things for himself, but he's revealed his will that we might know it and that we might do it. And so we know that there's nothing that comes into contradiction with the scriptures. So the scriptures are clear. Not only that, the scriptures are what's called inerrant. Right? And that word inerrant, it means to affirm only true things. So since the scriptures are from God's mouth, since he spoke them, we can believe that they are true. That there's no error. There's nothing wrong in the Bible that is trustworthy. That it, not only that, but it's also authoritative. Because it's God's word, it has authority over our lives <clears throat> to speak to us, to guide us, to lead us. 
It's also, as Protestants, we believe um, in something that's called sola scriptura, right? So that's a Protestant cry back in the 1500s with Martin Luther. And what that means is it means that scripture is primary, right? There's lots of ways in which we can know about God, right? We can look at creation, we can have experiences. There's lots of people that will have mystical experiences of the divine. There are traditions. There's reason, philosophical reason. But what we believe as Protestants, we believe that the scriptures are the base and the guide for everything else. Everything else we experience is subservient underneath the scriptures. The Bible is what clarifies what we believe, how we operate, not tradition. Right? And this is what changed and this is what split Protestantism from Catholicism. Papal authority, that the Pope was the one that could dictate and say and everything he said was infallible, didn't line up with the scriptures. Indulgences, purgatory, these things didn't line up with the scriptures. And so they were traditions of the church that were put in place. And because they weren't aligned with the scriptures, the Protestant Reformation happened and said, no, the scriptures are the only reliable guide. Right? Everything else... Now, now here... Tradition, reason, experience, all of these things aren't to be discarded entirely. They're not to be forgotten as if they don't matter. No, they do. They have important things that we can learn from, that they can say into our lives. We aren't to ignore the church fathers. We aren't to ignore traditions that have been healthy, that have been passed on. But what we are to do is we are to sift them through the scriptures. We are to see if, if they contradict the scriptures, if they match up with the scriptures. Because there's, there are, there's value in those things. There's value in experience. I mean, I think sometimes it's arrogant for us to assume that we're the only ones that have the Holy Spirit and the only ones that have lived the Christian life. Do you not think that there are thousands of years of people that have faithfully walked with Jesus and that we can learn much? Just as we can learn much from our community here, we have a wider community that we can learn much from. And so it's valuable, but it's, it is subservient underneath the Scriptures. The scriptures are our main guide. They are what leads us to, to Jesus. And this is why we can trust them. Right? I mean, we all know, we all see that somebody's experience, that somebody's tradition, that somebody's reason, God didn't breathe those out. Right? God didn't breathe out a holy tradition that would be infallible and passed on through 2,000 years. God didn't breathe out a certain ability to reason and logically prove that God existed. God didn't breathe out certain experiences. God breathed out his word. God spoke out his word that it would be true, it would be infallible, that it would be perfect, and that it would endure. And so everything else finds its place underneath the, the, underneath the veil of Scripture. So we see that, that the Bible is first and foremost that it's God's word. And this provides unity. It provides unity to the Scriptures. Um, but second, we see that the Bible is God's word through his people. First uh, Peter or Second Peter, sorry, Second Peter. It says First Peter. There, it's actually Second. Second Peter, uh, chapter one, verse twenty-one. It says, "For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." You see, the Bible, like Jesus, has two natures. There is a divine nature to Christ, but there's also a human, and so forth is the Scriptures. The scriptures are divinely inspired. God is the one that carried all along men by his Holy Spirit. But the men actually genuinely wrote and spoke. Right? It's not like the Bible just dropped out of heaven like the Book of Mormon supposedly did. Right? We, we believe that God spoke through means, namely his people. 
And you can't, if you don't understand that God used means, that God used people, then you begin to miss a lot of the beauty within the scriptures. That God has delegated, God has partnered with humanity in his mission to demonstrate his nature and his will and his purposes to humanity. There's over 40 different authors that have been partakers of writing scripture, and they all vary, right? I mean, we have kings, priests, shepherds, peasants, tax collectors, fishermen. We have all these different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different personalities, different cultural experiences, different time frames, all coming together. And they have their own personal experiences through which they write, their own suffering, their own hardship. And when we, I mean, it's obvious when you read it that they're different, right? I mean, Jeremiah reads very differently than Paul. And Luke is going to read very differently than John, right? You pick up Luke and you pick up some of the most polished Greek in the entire New Testament. I mean, Luke was a scholar. He was very intelligent. He was able to write very um, beautiful Greek. But you read John on the other hand, and John like reads like a second or third grader, right? So like whenever whenever I was in Greek class, I would just read John, and it would make me feel better about myself, you know? I'm like, all right, you know, like um, Luke would make you feel like you didn't know anything, <laughs> But, but there's, there's diversity in the midst of it. And this diversity brings out some of the beauty of what God does in his people. And so we see that, that God's word, it's God's word spoken through his people. But third, um, we also see that the Bible is God's word through his people to specific people. Right? So what this means is it means that, that the Bible wasn't written to us. Right? We are, we as 21st century Americans, we're not the primary audience of the scriptures. Right? They're, the audience of the scriptures were different people that lived in a very specific time that faced problems that sometimes we don't understand. And what this means is that it means that we humble ourselves. It means that we become servants of the scriptures rather than trying to make the scriptures become servants of us. We don't manipulate the scriptures. We don't twist the scriptures. Instead, we humble ourselves underneath the scriptures and we try to discern what the, what the Bible is actually teaching. I want you to imagine that somebody 2,000 years ago, somehow we were able to have a time capsule and send back a cell phone, right? And they, somebody 2,000 years ago from ancient Judea grabs the cell phone and starts, you know, somehow they're able to figure it out and they're able to open it up. And they are able to start scrolling through. And they've never seen or heard what text messaging is. It's a very foreign idea to them. And they start text, they start scrolling through your text messages. And they start seeing text messages you sent to friends, family members. And they see these emojis. They don't really know what they are. They're just pictures. And they see a fist. And they see, like, this kiss emoji. And then they see the little dung emoji. And they're like, man, either this person is really upset all the time. Like, they want to hit all the people around them. Or they see the kiss emoji and they're like, man, this person is really flirtatious. Like, they don't care about sex or gender or anything, you know? Or they see this and they're like, man, do they really do this to their friends? They poop on them? You know, like, they they see these things and they don't have any kind of context. They don't understand and they start, you know, they, they totally take these things out of context, right? Because they didn't... They don't know anything about American culture, about text messaging, that you send things that are, you know, usually not long, you know, that they're very brief and that they can go, you know, long periods of time without replying to. I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, and so they misinterpret. They don't understand. And this is, man, this is the, it's a funny illustration, but this is the exact same thing that we do, 
right? And so let me just give a couple examples of how we take God's word out of context. First, Philippians 4.13, right? I mean, the very classic one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? You usually see this under Tim Tebow's, like, you know, eyes, you know, as he's going out for a game or was um, when he was still playing football. Um, and or you, or you hear it, you know, like, before someone's, you know, usually it's a sports arena that you hear it in, or somebody's going in for a test, or, you know, they, they've got some kind of, you know, opportunity coming up, and they're trying to pump themselves up. Like, I can do this. Christ is going to strengthen me to win the sports, or to perform at the test. Right? I mean, but that's not at all what Paul's saying. I mean, if you actually read the context, Paul's talking about that I can do all things and be content in him who strengthens me that I can face starvation and suffering and persecution. I can face isolation and betrayal, all of these things, and I can be content. Why? Because it is Christ who strengthens me. I can have everything, and I can be well-fed, living in a life of luxury, having ministry go exactly as I want. And he says, I can be content because it is Christ who strengthens me. My identity and my contentment don't lie in my circumstances, but they instead they lie in Christ, who is the one that imparts strength to me. All right, an, another classic one that we have taken out of context, Matthew 18, verse 20, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Right? And usually this is said at prayer gatherings or it's said by people that are like, I don't really care for the church. You know, let's do our own church. And so they do, they get two or three people there and they're like, we're the church now. You know, the only problem is that, you know, like you, you just took the verse out and you didn't read the actual context of it because that verse is actually found within church discipline. <laughs> Jesus has just finished talking about that you're to go to your brother one on one and then two to three on, you know, on one and then before the whole church. And he is promising that where two or three are gathered, I am there. And what is he saying? He's saying that the, the, the practice of church discipline isn't to be done in isolation, that it's instead to be done as a community, that God's presence is found in his people, and that he works in and through his people to bring about church discipline. So uh, another, another one that we, we misinterpret, this is one, uh, a very classic one that uh, I heard all the time at our college at SBU, and I even have used and, and taken out of context, but it's Jeremiah 29, 11. And it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, this is a great Bible verse to wake up to. Right? What is God going to do for me today? He's going to give me a hope and a future. You know, like He's going to prosper me. And so, uh, you know, this is a great one to wake up to, a great one to text, a great one to put on a coffee mug or a back of a t-shirt, you know. Uh, the only, the only thing is that we totally strip it of its context. What's going on in this? Well, Jeremiah actually has some people that he's writing to that are in exile. The Jews were in exile because of their sin. And they were in Babylon. And they had been left there for a long time underneath God's discipline. And they're wondering, are we going to cease to be a people? Are we going to be absolved within the Babylonian reign and just be spread out amongst God's people? And Jeremiah is writing to them, reminding them that God's not done with you. He's saying, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans to bring you back. If you read the whole of Jeremiah, this is what he's doing. is He's reminding them that his discipline isn't forever. That he's going to restore them. He's going to bring them back to himself. 
that their exile, that their discipline will have an end and that his plans and his purposes and his promises for them, they will endure. Now you see, all these verses are really good verses and they actually have really good meanings and important meanings for us as Christians. It just is, we have to take them in context. And that means that we find ourselves as servants of scripture rather than making the scripture try to be servants of us. We humble ourselves underneath it. The fourth thing we see is that, so the Bible is God's word through his people to people, but it's for all people, right? The Bible is for all people. We see this Romans 15 verse 4. It says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, right? So though the Bible wasn't written to us, it most certainly was written for us. We are not the original audience of scripture, but God knew that we would read his scripture and he has put everything that we have needed to understand who God is, to relate to him, to walk out life following him in this world through the scriptures. We know that the scriptures are complete, that they are sufficient for us to understand, to relate with God. It also means that the scriptures are relevant, right? Sometimes it's hard. We look at it and we don't understand how is this, how is this relevant, right? I don't get, this is 2,000 years ago, this is old. How am I to even understand this? But since it's God's word, we hold that though it's spoken in a very timely way, it holds timeless truth. God's timeless truth is found within his scripture that speaks to all ages and all cultures in very different ways. And it's as we allow God's timeless truth to speak that it is currently, it's relevant. The Holy Spirit takes it and applies it. So I want to look at a couple ways in, in which practically God leads us through his scripture. Right? How is it that, that God makes his scripture relevant and applies it to our life? Well, the first thing I think how God takes the scriptures to lead us as a church and individually is that it's through the scriptures that we actually encounter Jesus, right? The scriptures bring us face-to-face or eye-to-word to Christ. It is the means to which we encounter him. The whole Bible proclaims that it is about Jesus. Now, that might be hard to understand, right? You start reading in the Old Testament, and you're like, man, it takes me three-fourths of the way before I even see Jesus' name. And so how can the whole Bible be about Jesus when his name's not even mentioned for the first three-fourths of it? But that's where we get to Luke 24, and Jesus is walking. It's after his resurrection. He comes to the disciples, and they're not understanding. It says he opens their minds to see the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, in the law, in the prophets, and in Moses. And so he opens their mind to see that Jesus, though his name isn't mentioned, is permeated throughout all of the scriptures. That it's not, it's not as if you can read every verse and there's a hidden meaning or a spiritual meaning behind it that leads you directly to see how Jesus is there. But no, but every, the stories of the Old Testament the character of the Old Testament, the plot, the way that it leads is constantly showing that we need a savior, that we can't save ourselves. When you look at Joseph's story, you see the faithfulness of God. You see the suffering of Joseph and God's ability to, to bring him almost out of death and that through Joseph, his people are saved. And you see Jesus. Right? I mean, you look at these characters, and what we did in, is that we looked at those characters, not only the character, but you see the plot line of Scripture, God's justice and God's mercy, 
And it, it's, it's anticipating Jesus to come and to rescue. And so the scriptures anticipate, the Old Testament anticipates and helps us to see, script, uh, helps us see Jesus through its themes, its plots, its characters. All of these things point us. I mean, we say that, but I tell you, that was a huge transformation in my life when I started to actually read the scriptures like that. Because so often we read the scriptures and we just see them as simply to-do lists, right? What does it want me to do? How can I just apply this? And we don't realize that, listen, first and foremost, the Bible isn't about us. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is, is intended for us to see his glory, to see his beauty, to see his magnificence, to see our need for him, and to be drawn in. And that is eternally relevant, because there is never a time where we will not need a Savior. And there's never a time where we will not need Christ to come and to, to love us and to rescue us. And so when we begin to understand that the Bible is about Christ, then we see its relevance. Because we start to look for our Savior and our Lord all throughout its pages, seeing this theme woven together. It's not only that it shows us Jesus, um, but it helps reorient our mind to who Jesus is. Right, Because we have a tendency as broken, sinful people, especially in the church, that we want to make a Jesus that looks like us. Right? A, you know, a white Jesus, a black Jesus, a Hispanic Jesus, you know, a democratic Jesus, or a republican Jesus. We want a hippie, loving, all-affirming Jesus, or a very religious, strict, bigoted Jesus. We, you know, we, we want to make Jesus after our image and create him to be like us. And what the scriptures do is that they help us and they they convict us and they direct us back to the true Jesus, who he really is. A first century Jew that was a, a carpenter that came that started a revolution that changed the entire world, that was God's proclaimed to be God's son, that flipped over tables, that didn't care, that wasn't offended by what people thought of him, that lived to please the Lord, but yet loved people deeply loved them so much that he would lay his life down for them, that was wholly misunderstood by almost everybody that died on a cross while all of his followers denied him and left him and and misunderstood his intents and purposes. When we actually read the scriptures, we begin to encounter a Jesus who is very different than the one that we tend to make after our own image that encourages us and comforts us and leads us in the path that we want to go rather than the Jesus that calls us to die to ourselves, that calls us to leave our comfort zone, that leads us to take up our cross daily and follow him. The scriptures bring us a Jesus that confronts us, that changes us. So that's one way that the scriptures are relevant. Another way that the scriptures are relevant and applicable to us is that the Bible does aid us very practically in our daily choices. Right? It, it, the Bible leads us in sometimes second to second, minute to minute choices that we make and how we make them. Second Timothy three sixteen through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So some ways that practically the scripture applies to us in our everyday life. We see here is it says that it trains us in righteousness. So uh, the idea is found again in uh, Paul's earlier writing to first to Timothy in First Timothy chapter four verses seven through eight. He says, "Instead, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in, in every way." 
as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So what he's saying here is he's saying he's making a comparison, right, between bodily training, bodily discipline, and training for godliness and training for being trained by righteousness. Now, whenever I work out, which hasn't been as recently as I would like, but whenever I do work out, there is a consistency about it, right? I mean, you don't get too many results if you just show up at the gym once, you know, every month. It doesn't go too well for you, right? But you need to eat consistently. You need to be in the gym consistently. You know, there are choices you make, and as you do that, you see results, right? As you do that, you see muscle mass build. You see fat being cut. All of these things begin to build, and it takes time, right? But it it begins to kind of mount, and it continues on. And working out's not always easy, right? Because what you're doing in working out is that you're actually destroying your body, right? I mean, literally, that's what you're doing. You're tearing your muscles apart. And as your muscles are being torn apart, you're then in the rest part having them be rebuilt so that you might grow back stronger. And he has this, he says, listen, you, we do this for bodily training, but how much more, how much more important, how much more valuable is this in training for righteousness? And so God's word, what it does is it lays forth precepts and how we are to live, right? It calls us to positive things. It says, be patient with one another. Be loving, show humility. It says all these things, right? These positive elements that it calls us to that are difficult. At times, you know, it feels like we're dying doing these things, but it breaks us down. And it, Martin Luther, he, uh, he broke down um, the different kind of exhortations within the scriptures to two different things. I think it's super helpful. But he said that there are things that are called law and that there are, there are elements that are the gospel, Right, And he says that the law law is constituted by anything that makes demands on us. Right, The law is, is when you are called to do this. You are called to love. You are called to, to keep the Sabbath. You are called to not murder. You are called all of these things. These are commands that we are called to obey. Things that, that require action of us. And at times they break us down. Right, Because we, when we hear these things... In one sense, it guides us, right? Because we hear these things and it shows us how to love, right? They're truth. I mean, the Ten Commandments, even Christ's exhortations and the New Testament, we, we have all these guidelines, these, these laws, in essence, that guide us in how we are to love. But at times, they break us down, right? Because we realize our frailty. We realize our inability to do them as well as we would want. You know, we, we start to, to do them and then we see false motives in our heart. We see that we can't carry it out as much as we want. We realize that, that we're all hypocrites. And so it begins to break us down. And that's where the gospel comes in God's grace and what he promises us is he promises that he loves us. He promises that he is gracious towards us. He promises that he is moving towards us, that he is working out our salvation in us. And these, these allow us to rest and these rebuild us. They repair us so that we might continue to follow Christ, that we might continue to walk out the commands that he gives to us. And so as we do this daily, right, as we're in the scriptures and we're listening to God speak to us, we're seeking to understand his commands and obey them. And as we're, we're then realizing our inability and our frailness, and we're running and accepting and embracing his grace, our character begins to change, right? We begin to look more and more like Christ and this is the process that sometimes it's slow and sometimes we thought we could bench more than we could and we find that we're, we're weaker than we thought we were. But this is the process that God uses to change our character, that God is, is making us more like him. And so practically he's training us in righteousness. 
Um, the second thing that we see here is that um, it, the Bible affects us every day in, in our, practically in our lives is that it brings correction and it brings reproof, right? This idea of, of reproof is that there are, is a, a false belief that is happening and that there is an absolute authority that you go to to show the correctness of what you believe. And so there are times because, listen, we are, inf- we are people that are influenced, Right? We are influenced all the time. I don't think there's been a people in the history of the, world, of the world that have been more influenced by us because of the amount of information that we have. I mean, think about the amount of information that we process in a single day, the text messages, the calls, the media that we're constantly listening to. We've never had more messages and information put in our minds. And so we are constantly being influenced, and our beliefs are constantly being attacked and swayed. What you listen to, what you watch, all these things, they affect what we believe. They affect what we think. And so the scriptures come in, and they are the ones that guide us. They reprove us. And they say, no, that isn't correct that you believe that. And they show us what is true. Now, the idea of correction is coming in, like it sounds, that there is a time where we, by our life, are not living in accords with what God would have us to. Perhaps it's that we're... We're, living, we're not living financially as God would call us to live. We're not being faithful. We're not being good stewards. Or perhaps it would be with our time. That we're not being faithful where God would have us with, to be with our time. Or maybe it's a relationship. Or, you know, There's all kinds of different areas. But, but God, through his word, puts a finger on something in our life. He convicts us. And he calls us. And he corrects us. And the idea in this is that sometimes this is like, I know for me, I don't like to be corrected. Anybody like to be corrected? Anybody like to have their wrongdoings pointed out? It's not, it's not fun. It's hard. It's difficult, right? But, but when God does it through his word, his, his whole point is loving, right? I know that, I know that in times, you know, when I've had coaches, when I've had track instructors that have taught me, say, hey, you're running wrong. You need to run this way. You know, or you're shooting wrong. Like, I remember for a while, I didn't know how to shoot the basketball correctly, and so I had to learn how to shoot, you know? And it's frustrating because it's hard because you have muscle memory and you're used to doing things a certain way, and you almost feel like you have to relearn it. And sometimes that's what it feels like, is that God comes and he comes to correct an attitude or behavior or a lifestyle that we're living in, and it feels like it's impossible because we've been doing it so long this way. But God, by his grace and with his people and through his spirit, aids us in changing and moving and being conformed to his image. And so the scriptures come in to correct us. They come in to to help us to see. And God's aim and motive in that is loving, right? That we we would have health and have vitality and have life. So they bring correction, they bring reproof. Another way that the scriptures practically apply um, and affect our daily life is that the, the scriptures are a way that God brings faith into our lives. God increases our faith through reading and through hearing his scripture. Romans 10 verse 17, it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now the context of this is Paul's talking about the gospel, right? And the gospel coming on in the, in the Jews' lives. But then he goes on and he talks about the Old Testament, how the words of God came. And how it was what, when they responded to it, was what revealed their faith and it produced faith in them. How is it that, that the scriptures produce faith in us? I think it's reflecting in it for me. I think that it's, it's in seeing God's trustworthiness through his people and in his word. It's as we hear God's word that it somehow God miraculously, especially when we first believe, we hear God's word and God produces somehow this trust that it is him. 
and we begin to, to lean in. But as we're Christians, we, as we listen and we see God's word, we begin to trust it more and more and more. It, tr- it proves its trustworthiness, right? That God's word does work and that as we apply it, as we abide in it, it proves its own fruit in our life. It produces more and more faith as we trust God. Not only does it, um, does it produce fruit, but it, it's truth. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we've talked about it before, but, but we, kneel, we know and see that God's word is our ultimate standard for what is true. How am I to know how to love someone? Well, I go to God's word and I say, what, is, what does God's word say and how I'm to love? It is what clarifies what is true and what is right. So we've seen just a, a couple practical ways in which it leads us. Um, I want to talk about how does the scripture inform the life and ministry of the church? Right? How does it practically dictate what we as a, a church do? Um, first thing is uh, is preaching, right? Uh, it's We spend a large part of our time doing it. Uh, or, well, I know I do, and I know you listen. So uh, we, we, we believe as a church in preaching that it is a huge part of what God's word is and that we are not just to do it from a pulpit. Right, the word what it means to preach is it means to public proclaim. It means to be a herald. Right? And so preaching isn't something that we are just to do from a pulpit that you're just to listen to, but we are all to be preachers, proclaimers of God's word. Right? That we are to declare what God has done in and through us. And we see that the importance of it. Uh, Paul's talking to Timothy and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so we believe not only that we are called, like the, the scriptures lay forth that we are to preach, that, that is to be something that God's church devotes themselves to. But it doesn't just say that you're to preach, but it says what you're to preach. That you're to preach the scriptures. That you're not to preach man's opinion, you're not to preach your traditions but you're instead to as best as we're able and and we are broken every single preacher is a a broken vessel through which god just uses to declare but every preacher is to get behind and try to lift up god's scripture is to try to get and get out of the way and try to hold up the word of god that he would speak try to see and help people to see christ's glory and his goodness that they would want him not only that but so we see that the Preaching is part of what is formed by the word. Um, also, though, singing. We one of the big reasons we have Martin. We do worshipful singing isn't just because they do a good job or because we like worshiping or because we like singing in that way. It's because it's actually prescribed within the scriptures. Colossians three sixteen says, "Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs." Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is one of the ways in which God brings, and honestly, some of the primary ways in which God uses people to bring his word to us. Um, I can tell you, sometimes it's discouraging for me, probably encouraging for Marty, that there's tons of times where people remember the songs, but they don't remember the sermon at all, right? They'll leave, and they're like, I do not even remember the big idea or the main point of that, but that song is going to be stuck with me for the next week, right? And and why, man, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in that. Why? Is because part of what singing does is it helps us to remember God's word. It, it, it implants God's word in our heart and in our mind, 
You know, I love it when, you know, VBS gets over, right? Because probably for the next month, everybody is just singing a song. And I am not like a musical guy at all. I have a terrible voice. But I find myself like having a song rolling around in my head. You know, I'll wake up and I'll start singing. And I'm like, this is actually pretty good because I start thinking about the lyrics. And I'm like, man, actually, this is like it glorifies the Lord. It's honoring, you know. And so singing helps us to remember it helps us to remember God's word. It hides it within our heart. And because of that, it helps us to be conformed to his image. Right? As we're reflecting and remembering his word, it transforms us. It practically guides us. So we, we remember God's word through, through singing often. Um, there are lots of other ways that we see. We see that the scriptures call us as individuals and as a church to serve the poor. Jesus in um, in Matthew twenty five talks about it that you do as as much as you do these to the least of these to your brothers you do this unto me and so the way that we treat the poor and the way we serve the poor is a reflection of our treatment of Christ and so as a church we're called to be a, be a people that serve the poor we are called to live in community right you cannot read the Bible and obey the Bible without being in intimate community it's impossible what do you do with all the one another's they're all throughout the Bible. You can't read 1 Corinthians 12 as it talks about the many members in a body and think that and not be a part of the body, not be in a relationship with other people because it's, we're called to be an organic organism, right? That we, we work with one another to accomplish the purposes of God. And so we have to be in community with one another. We are called to take care of the orphans and the widows. As James 1 talks about, that true and undefiled religion is this to keep oneself unstained from the world, to take care of orphans and widows. And so we also see that it's, it's to be agents of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about that there's a ministry that's been entrusted to us as Christians, is that we are to be ministers of reconciliation, that we are to help a broken world and broken people be reconciled back to God to see him. But we are also to be agents of reconcilers between people that we are to help bridge conflict and division, that we are to try to bring peace as God's people. And so the scriptures are what, and this is just a tiny piece of it, but the scriptures are what guide and bring forth the life and ministry of the church. That we don't just decide, well, we just want to create something outside. But no, we, as we search the scriptures, the scriptures will bring forth what it is that we are called to do and be as his people. So what role do the scriptures have in your life? As we, as we practically apply this, are the scriptures, are, is, is the Bible, is God's word what is guiding and directing you and your actions and what you do and how you spend your time and your finances and your relationships? Is it, are you seeing its commands as guiding you? Are you resting in its grace towards you? Isaiah 66, verse 2, it says, All of these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. How we treat God's word is how we treat God. As we ignore the scriptures, as we set aside the scriptures, as we listen to other people, our opinions, culture at large, being politically correct, that is how we are treating Jesus. To the degree to which we value his word, that we hide in our heart, that we, we see its intrinsic worth and its beauty, that is the means through which we will show God how much we value Him. Let us pray. Father, uh, I readily confess, Lord, my inability and at times my failures and faults to not value You through Your Word. 
I pray for us as a people, God, that um, that we would come and confess, Lord, that there are ton, there are times where we don't see or value Your Word as we ought, and we ask that Your grace would come in and that You would encourage us, that You would strengthen us to see Your beauty, to see Your glory. Um, to see and, and to treasure your word more than gold, more than our time, more than our relationships, God, that we would value you. Help us, Christ, to be a people that are marked by the book, to be a people of your word. Guide us and lead us, Holy Spirit. We love you, King Jesus. We submit underneath your lordship and your reign through your word. It's your name that we pray. Amen.